Is there a guest you'd like to hear on Sketchbook? Maybe you'd like to hear from a specific composer, arranger, designer, creator, or artist. Is there a particular show, piece of music, or production you'd like to hear more about? Send us your request or suggestion to sketchbookpodcast at gmail.com. After winning their second DCI World Championship in 1995 with their show The Planets, the Cavaliers' German Bugle Corps fell to fourth in 1996 and dropped to seventh place with their 1997 production The Firebird, the lowest the Corps had finished since finishing eighth in 1987. The Cavies then moved up to fourth place in 1998 and then received the bronze medal in 1999 with their show Classical Innovations. That 1999 show also saw the Chicago Cavaliers taking home their fourth high percussion award in the history of the Corps, all in the 1990s. In the year 2000, a design team came together that would come to dominate DCI for the better part of the next decade led by program coordinator Scott Coder, Michael Gaines designed the drill, Richard Salcedo composed and arranged the brass book, and Brett Kuhn and Eric Johnson composed and arranged the battery and front ensemble books. The 2000 production, Niagara Falls, featured music from and inspired by Niagara Falls by Michael Doherty and Waves from Soundings by Cindy McTee, as well as original music by Salcedo, Kuhn, and Johnson. The 2000 season ended with the Cavaliers of Rosemont, Illinois, winning their third DCI World Championship in a tie with the Cadets, as well as winning the John Brazali Best Visual Performance Award, the George Zingali Best Color Guard Performance Award, and the Fred Sanford Best Percussion Performance Award. Joining me today are future DCI Hall of Famers Brett Kuhn and Eric Johnson. Brett served as caption head and percussion arranger for the Cavaliers who won six world championships and five high percussion awards during his tenure. And from 1995 to 2005 and 2008 to 2010, Eric Johnson was on the instructional staff serving on the design team as the front ensemble arranger and coordinator. On this episode of Music Book, we discuss the Cavaliers 2000 production, Niagara Falls.
Brett, thank you so much for talking to me today. Your style of writing has definitely had an impact on the style of battery writing. I like to hear. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Well, thank you, Daniel. I'm excited to be here. Um, you know, when you contacted me to do this, I was uh, totally pumped um, because I knew I was going to get to go back and review 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Because when someone calls you and says, hey, man, let's talk about 20 years ago, you're like, <laughs> uh, okay. But, uh, man, it was so cool walking down memory lane uh, with all the videos and just listening to the music again. Um, I even reached out to Tom Blair, who's a really oh. close friend of mine, because mm -hmm. I, I actually lived with Tom when I first moved to Chicago. And uh, he got me the designer's track, if you remember those. They used yeah, to the commentary TV. tracks, uh-huh. And so I spent some time like just revisiting that um, and remembering just a lot of cool aspects of that year in the show. But uh, thank you. i looking forward to having this conversation. Oh, totally, of course. And Eric... To me, there is only one front ensemble composer and arranger style that I have tried to mimic and replicate over the years. One composer and arranger's lineage that I point to when I describe the style of pit writing that I want for my wind books. And of course, only one mallet company that I constantly reference in concert and marching band rehearsals. I'm incredibly thrilled to be able to talk with you today, as, as well as Brett. But man, Eric, this is going to be fantastic. Daniel, thank you so much for, for having us. It's, uh, you know, it's an honor to, to be included in this series. And, and I thank you for the kind words there, for sure. Um, looking, uh, as Brett said, looking back to the, to, you know, the year 2000, it have to go back and, you know, I had to pull the scores out and kind of look through them and, you know, listen to a recording just so I can go back and just, you know, take it all in because I, I looked at that score and, it you know and I, I wrote things quite a bit differently back then I, I didn't even realize but you know it was uh, kind of interesting just to go back and look at it so so thank thanks for including us and looking looking forward to uh, talking you know through this for sure. This is the fourth episode of the podcast that is focusing on the Cavaliers. As Michael Gaines says, no, I don't have Cavaliers fatigue at this point. Um, I spoke with Scott Coder about 007, Michael Gaines about Spin Cycle, and Richard Saucedo about Frameworks. And I'm so glad it worked out that I could talk to the two of you about Niagara Falls, not only because it won DCI, and not only because y'all won your second consecutive percussion trophy, and not only because of what I call the lick, which we'll talk about later, but <laughs> because this show started my love affair with the Cavaliers. And, and don't get me wrong, I enjoyed some of the shows that the Cavaliers put on earlier in the 90s, or earlier than that, but it was almost as if the 2000 show reached out and grabbed me by the neck. And said like this is going to change your life like it was it's one of those shows that i i can pinpoint when i saw it and how my life changed musically and just in, in general so before we get to that 2000 show i want to talk a little bit about what led to that show um brett can you clarify your lineage with the cavaliers because i think i read that you started teaching in the mid 1980s but that doesn't make sense because you're so incredibly young. Were, were you 16 years old when you were teaching the drum line? I don't understand. I was actually six, Daniel. And, uh, <laughs> no, uh, you are correct, sir. Um, actually, I aged, well, I, my rookie age out year, my one year of drum corps was 81. And then I moved here in 80, the fall of 83. And then uh, to play, basically, I was a drum set player and... Um, Cavaliers needed a snare tech. Bob Niedrich had been my tech, was moving back east. 
So in 84, I, uh, I felt very fortunate, um, didn't realize how fortunate at the time to come in the same time Jim Campbell came in. He was a huge influence on me in terms of just musical form and understanding phrasing and the sense of writing and approaching uh, music and the activity of the, I think in a fresh, a fresh way. And so I was, I was pretty much a tech for that first, you know, handful of years there. And then I became caption head and then it would, it would float back and forth between me maybe being caption head and then pulling back for a year. Cause you know, you, you have so many things you have to do. So 84 to, to 2005 was essentially the run. Um, I did take 93 completely off. I, uh, I needed a break or 94, excuse me, 94. Um, and, uh, then came back in 95 and, uh, been really talking to, to Jim about Eric at that time for, well, actually for several years. And, uh, we finally got Eric involved and that was the beginning of our peer relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, many people don't know this. Eric's going to be like, thanks for bringing that up. But Eric was in my very first snare line. <laughs> in, in 1984 and i mean you, you can't write that stuff like i mean now he makes my sticks i mean it's, <laughs> it's so cool um to have that kind of relationship you know um and uh you know the waters run deep with eric and i so it's it's fantastic but yeah it's it wasn't to, it wasn't until um 99 that i really was writing completely just autonomous you know before it'd been as always you know even with my stuff whoever's writing always has to have great people around them to massage and move things around when you're not on tour you can't you can't strap your techs they have to be able to develop the show so with that being said that that's pretty much uh the history and the run of it so yeah long time yeah now Eric, Brett, on an earlier phone call, gave me the Cliff Notes version of your path to the Cavaliers staff. And, and Brett just alluded to you being in his snare line in 1984. Can you talk about that path um, that began with the Cavaliers, then got to Night Express, if I remember correctly, and, you know, sort of, I don't want to say ended with the Cavaliers, but you kind of bookended your teaching with the Cavaliers. Can you talk about that path? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it I, and the way I'm going to start here, it's going it, to, I was a little reluctant to say this, but again, you know, so many people go through this in drum corps. The way I ended up at the Cavaliers is I was cut from the Phantom Regiment, <laughs> you know, and, you know, they, they had been you know, very successful in drums in 1983. And, you know, so me and a bunch of my buddies from my hometown went up and auditioned, you know, and uh, we got cut at the end of the camp. You know, Mike Mann was teaching Phantom Regiment at the time, writing the percussion coordinator. And he came and said, hey, any of you guys that just got cut, there's a new guy coming on in over the Cavaliers. His name's Jim Campbell, and they're looking for guys. And I was just like, if you just want to march, and I said, I just want to march, you know. So I, I you know, talked my parents into letting me, you know, go to another camp. Um, and, you know, they, they were a little reluctant because our car broke down on the way back from that regiment camp you know but i was able to to go to the next camp and you know i tried out for tenors because i had played tenors in the memphis blues in 1983 and so when i walked into cavaliers you know i said i want to i want to audition for snare you know i i did not know the cavalier style i i knew more of the phantom regiment style but i was very very much behind on everything um and but they gave me an opportunity and it uh you know had a had a lot of work to do uh, but like i said you know brett you know, he was he was uh teaching the the snare line 
and and again that's that's where it all started so i, I you know marched there in 80 84 and 85 uh, i did not age out in 1985 i would have aged out in 87 but i stopped to go uh study solo marimba i went and studied with mm. lee howard stevens for two summers kind of a big deal and then after that i you know uh, uh, finished my undergraduate work and I went and worked at my master's at the University of North Texas. And, you know, but I stayed in touch with Brett through this time. Um, you know, Brett and I used to talk, you know, uh, pretty, not real frequently, but we would talk. And, and I saw Brett at, at PASIC in Nashville. And I think maybe it was 19, uh, I can't remember what year it was. Um, but anyway, I told Brett I was interested in teaching the core. And, you know, Brett was like, well, I tell you what, let's, let's get you a gig teaching, you know, a division at the time, a division two, three core, which mm -hmm. would be known as open class course today yeah. and kind of let you, you know, get your feet wet, you know? So, uh, he had somebody eventually call him, John Wooten called him because John was, oh. uh, taking over the, being the program coordinator for the Emerald Knights out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And so John, you know, called Brett and said, Hey, I'm looking for a guy to be the caption head of my drum line. And, Brett goes, I have a name for you. And so John called me and, you know, and uh, that, that just kind of worked out. So I was at the, that core for, you know, four years and it eventually became Night Express. Um, but I stayed in communication with Brett. I started writing for that core, the full percussion uh, score in 1980, or excuse me, 1993. I did that in 1993, 1994. And I would send my scores to Brett and Brett would look at them, make comments. I'd make changes, you know, and, and I would send him audio tapes and, you know, he was kind of, you know, uh, helping me out all the way through this, you know, but through this whole process, you know, the, it, the, the, the plan was, is eventually to, you know, hopefully I could teach the Cavalier someday. And, and, you know, Brett was able to make that work out. And in 1995, I went in and I just consulted, you know, and helping out with the front ensemble and I actually did a little time, you know, teching the bass drums in the summer. And that, that's kind of where it all started. <laughs> it's funny to hear you go, I was kind of hoping I'd get to the Cavaliers one day. And it's like <laughs> Brett and Eric Johnson to me. And yes, I know about, you know, Jim Campbell in the nineties, but you know, growing up coming of age, it's, been Brett Kuhn and Eric Johnson for the Cavaliers, but not to take anything away from anyone who followed y'all or anything like that, but that's just, that's just my life. So Brett, when it comes to your writing style, I'm not sure if you've said this in the past or someone else said it, or I just dreamt it and assumed it was true, but I've heard your writing style for battery described as like drum set or groove writing for battery ensemble. Does, does that sound about right? Or should I fire my research team? Yeah, I know your research team should get a raise because that <laughs> is, uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly for me. It's, it's really about how things feel. Um, and I think I was very fortunate, you know, um, when I was young, we just did a lot of playing with records, man. It was always drumming with albums. And, uh, I think the realization that you were always, whether it was an Elvin Jones thing or a Steve Gadd thing or whatever, you were listening to these guys play things and you were gradually figuring out stickings and realizing that these are just part of our rudimental family. But the way they make them sound melodic and the way they make them move is, uh, is awesome. And I think having that background first, um, I, I'm grateful for that. I, I think form and feeling phrases, you know, that's the other thing I think that's important with writing is, you know, you get a four bar percussion window and there's something about what's in that window that makes it feel like it fits, like it's not just measure by measure thought. It's truly a phrase thought. So for me, I think um, having that background was 
was extremely important. I mean, there's there's parts in the 2000 show that I'll be able to tell you exactly what album inspired that lick. Oh, that's going to be awesome. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah, so Eric, you basically pioneered a front ensemble setup that has become one of the basically standard setups for front ensembles now. And you're responsible for a writing style that has been passed down and expanded upon for basically two decades. Can you remember how you came about your style of writing and voicing and how that may have impacted your decision on how to set up the front ensemble? Well, the, the style of writing, um, really, it's uh, it came about from just trying to write for clarity uh, and transparency. I wanted to be able to hear um, everything going on, and I didn't, you know, my my, my ear couldn't uh, digest too much. You know, some some folks are, are really great at, at, at scoring in a in a thick way, and it's it's just not something that that, that I could do. But also, a lot of that was because we wanted the front ensemble to project. This was before amplification. So we wanted everything we did to have a, a, a musical presence about it. You know, not just, well, you know, they're playing this really cool lick, but I have to show you on the score because you can't hear it. You know, we wanted to be able to hear every single thing that was, uh, that was put, put down on the page. Um, so there was the big uh, approach and push for that. Uh, but the the setup you're talking about was actually a setup that I came up with in the fall of 1999. Um, and I still remember I was watching uh, the Tennessee Titans play football. And I had uh, I had eight sheets of paper out in front of my entertainment center. And, you know, remember one, remember two, remember three, remember four. And I kept rearranging. And I just look at it while I was watching the game. I sit back and I look at it and watch. And now we had been through a lot since, you know, 1990. Uh, well, really, I started experimenting a little bit in 1996. Or, yeah, 1996 and seven and eight. And then 1999. But uh, I went back and looked at 1999. We were still, still, the instruments were staggered every other one. So, 2000 was the first time we did this, having all the marimbas in a line with the Bible on either end, then offset a marimba in the back. Uh, but so much of it was just the, the presence of the marimba, um, because we, we had tried use, working with marimbas antiphonally. The, the, the sound of a marimba is shorter, so they do not work antiphonally. They have to be closer together to get a larger sound. Where vibraphones, they have the sustain. You can split them up, and, you know, and the sustain allows them to work together. And again, had learned that the hard way over the, you know, the previous four years before that. So just figuring out what sounded the best. And then also your, your, your marimbas, there's more notes that are typically written for the marimbas. So they, they had more of a presence because it was more aggressive. Whereas the vibraphones, you know, they, they were, had, you know, notes, but not the same type of notes, but they had, they brought a certain uh, lyric to the front ensemble and created this larger sound because I use a lot of uh, sustain with the vibraphones. I didn't get real meticulous with every single pedaling because my approach was, is I don't know if you're gonna hear that pedaling standing across the track, but if you push the pedal down more and have more sustain, it created this larger sound. So, but you know, we spent a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out what worked, what didn't work. And that was the first summer of that. The only thing we changed up, we started with the timpani on side one because back in that time, you know, contrabass, you know, their their vowels are right here so you know they were on side one more than they were on side two you know eventually that changed so it didn't matter we ended up moving the timpani over to side two just because logistically it worked out better so yeah 
That's yeah. And the, and then the world was was never the same. Uh, so y'all had just come off of the 1990 season where the core placed third and y'all took home your fourth best percussion award. I'm curious if y'all remember the mindset going into the 2000 season for the percussion. What was the percentage of returning vets? What were the audition numbers like for that season? And was a repeat on your minds, both officially and unofficially? You know, this is sort of just a general question for either of you to jump in and, and attack. Well, I, I think, you know, uh, and Eric, you know, help me here, but, you know, I would say almost every year, 85, 80, 85% of the line was back unless they aged out. Um, one thing we were very proud of is that the, the guys really loved being there. We tried to create an environment that was like, you know, it's very fraternal there and it's hard to describe um, having been with both, you know, co-ed and non-co-ed drum corps, but the, uh, the, the brotherhood and just the strength the guys had together and, and how much they enjoyed making music together was really our, our strength. And then it was hard because, I mean, there were years we had, you know, over a hundred snare drummers coming through the door and you got two or three spots, you know, and it's heartbreaking because there's just all these amazing kids. So we, uh, Eric did this, I did this, you know, we all did this. Anybody who didn't make it, just like Eric was treated at Phantom that year, if uh, if we can help you get a spot somewhere, and because we knew everybody in the activity, because we're all so close, you know, you might see me and Eric and, and Neil Larry and Tom Monks hanging out, and man, we're just, we're just good friends, we're just hanging, you know, uh, everybody looks at it like we're these competitors, and we hate each, it's like, no, it's not like that at all. <laughs> And so we just tried to be real supportive to those guys. So, so we were very blessed to have the talent and, uh, you know, the return kind of situation that we were facing. And, you know, that's, that's an experience for a core who's having success too. You know what I mean? So Eric, anything on that? Does that sound accurate? One of the things, you know, we came back in, you, you know, you're not thinking, well, we won drums last year. How are we going to up that? You know, we didn't really have that mindset. It's kind of like it was a new year. Okay. We're, we're, it's a new year, and, and the, the goal is, is to try to do what we do at the, the best we can at the highest level possible. And, you know, we'll, you know what's what's the talent like? Uh, what's the show going to be? What, you know, are there any limitations? And, and you just get up and go to work and try to try to create the highest level product you possibly can. You know, we, that's one of the things, you know, the Cavaliers, we never really focused a lot on the, the competition um, and didn't you know, just didn't allow ourselves to, to get uh, – uh, ingrained with that because it wasn't about that you know we were all having a good time we were all you know educators but we were all we were all friends and colleagues and, and you know and one of the, the people we used to work with uh, in latter years was Drew Shanefield he used to say hey it's my poker night you know and it was it, it, <laughs> we would all go you know to to hang out together it's the the guys I was working with they were my best friends I couldn't wait to get to camp and hang out with everybody and then but we all had a, a common goal of producing you know the, the best possible product that we could you know and so that's just what we did we just we got up and went to work every day had a great time doing it working with each other well and I I I, I agree Eric and I think you know Daniel um we we sort of had three different I guess key mantras um one was bring your lunch pail and show up for work. You know what I mean? Like just blue collar, man. When the bell rings, you know, when it's time to work, you go to work. Um, the pressure on the design team, the design team was, 
the only pressure we felt was creating a product worthy of all these young men's work for an entire summer. Mm-hmm. That, and, and then realizing and pressing hard on the guys to understand we're not competing against other drum corps because there's no defense. Yeah. It's like ice skating or diving and these amazing other sports that are just, it's all on you, man. There's no block shots. There's no, you know, fly outs. There's no, you know, double plays, man. It's like, how, how good do you want to be? Then you got to put the time in and, and you got to work on it. So I think, I think that sort of mentality keeps you healthy because then you realize you're creating art that'll be memorable as opposed to worrying about um, the numbers on a daily basis. Yeah, and let me add one thing to that because Brett talked about you know providing a show worthy of the the guys in the core, um, you know, for them to to spend that kind of you know that amount of hours working on it. You know, you think about how many hours you rehearse the music. And you don't want to give them something that insults them or something that would not be worthy of the amount of hours that they spend doing it, put, you know, uh, put into that, that, that music. I'm not speaking very clearly, but, you know, if I, if I'm going to work on something for hours, I don't, I want it to be some good, I want it to be good music. I want it mm-hmm. to be music I enjoy and not something that, you know, it's like, oh, I, I dread working on this. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't like this, or I think this is, I think this is terrible, or whatever. You want, we wanted the guys to be, yeah. I, I dig this. I want to spend hours working on this. Yeah, great. Well, your answers really kind of ruined this next question because I was going to say, when did you guys know that the percussion was going to be special? Um, and was there a point when you turned to each other and said, in the words of Jimmy Duggan, "We're gonna win." Like, just kind of like where you knew, like, wait a minute, we're, we're going to do this again. <laughs> Was there a point that that happened? You know, that's a great question because every year at different times, it, it will occur. You know what I mean? You have those rare moments where you're like, okay, this this is it. And for me, it wasn't so much the percussion, it was the show. Once the show got to a certain point, and you were able to see what Michael was doing and, and where the brass were and and just the coordination of things. You're like, all right, man, we we got, you know, because we already know what we have on the field, right? You know what I mean? So now it's like you're upstairs, you're in ensemble, and, and you're getting goosebumps in rehearsal, and you're like, all right, it's on, you know, like <laughs> – the boys are the boys are ready to go and you just get that feeling and when you had like in 2000 we had so much maturity in that light in terms of experience um and cavalier experience that there was just you know there's there was no sense of um concern and that's the that's the key anyway right is your goal in the summer is to erase concern that's how you get to that those amazing performances and man they were just chomping at the bit man they just wanted to go and uh, it was it was kind of interesting because that was also the year Tom Blair recorded them warming up in the lot, which like, mm. you know, nowadays I call it the petting zoo. But nowadays in Indianapolis, everybody's like all in one zone and everybody can kind of float around, you know, between yeah. the different animals. And it's like, you know, it's so different. Back then you would go out and you'd, you'd find the crickets mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you'd kind of get in your zone and then do your thing. And all of a sudden the guys had cameras on them before, I think it was before, might've been before semis. I don't remember. It was not finals night. And 
and so they were they were making some mistakes that they normally don't make and i was like wow this is actually an awesome warm-up for them because they're on the you can tell they're feeling it up close right now Mm -hmm. so we can get this out now (laughs) when they go on the field it'll be like wow the cameras are gone let's go (laughs) so yeah it was it was one of those where it was more about the total show and that probably would have been towards maybe the end of july daniel i think Mm -hmm. yeah what about you eric did you did you ever just go like internally we're gonna do this this is ours you know i i didn't uh because uh, again it 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 still felt new and we were just uh, getting up and going to work and trying to figure it out i i didn't even it didn't even really occur to me that the core could finish you know where it did and i think the the first time that i really thought about it was the night whenever you know they called out the placement of the core i was like what you know <laughs> you know we were just again we were doing our, our thing having a great time doing it it was it was one of those drum lines you know ever so often 95 was this way 2000 was this way i didn't worry about the drum line playing clean you know when when in a show that mm-hmm. th- that didn't concern me because they were they were consistent and they were they were going to be you know for the most part they were going to be they were going to play well you know so i didn't worry about that you know but you know again we, we worried about the, the getting the show i went back and listened to uh a recording of the show from from uh, uh the mid dci midwest show mm-hmm. at DeKalb. And wow, Brad, it was way different. You know, it just there's some things. It's like, whoa, I, I didn't realize that was there. You know, because it, it changed so much by the end. But I, I do remember that show evolved a lot. Um, I remember, you know, we were. I don't even. I don't remember where we were, but we were working on putting in phrasing at the highest level. I remember Mike McIntosh was working with Drew Shanefield and getting phrasing in, in, in and and every every. Thing had to be phrased. I mean, if something wasn't addressed, it had to be addressed. Uh, but it was just—it was just one of those shows that was fun. You know, you have some years that stick out in drum corps, or if you—if you know, winter drumline or whatever. But you know, you know, the ninth, the two thousand show was one of those shows that was always will hold a special place because the process was so fun. You didn't get caught up in the competition. You were just doing and having a great time doing it. So the show would obviously have started to be written in 1999, which is <clears throat> a little older than some of the kids who are currently marching drum corps right now. So I'm curious about when y'all both sat down to compose and arrange this show, what was the process like, specifically the nuts and bolts, not the ether of inspiration and all that stuff? Did you start with staff paper and pencil? Did you sequence it into a DAW or a synth? Did you compose directly into notation software? As I said, it was 1999-2000. I'm pretty sure virtual drumline didn't exist yet. And Eric, you touched a little bit on this in our phone call but do you remember how that process worked uh, as as you wrote in uh, that for that show yeah um and you know it, it was a very different time because i was still writing with a pencil <laughs> and you know and the guys were all writing on finale and i would write my scores um and uh gary rudolph would enter the pit parts on to finale and he would he would start doing that at camps and you know get through a good portion of it um but again i was just it was all writing it you know with pencil i mean uh we were fortunate you know richard Sacedo was was writing writing the brass and uh one of the, the unique things that richard did is he would use the front ensemble as I won't say as a woodwind section, but in the same way you would use a woodwind section. Mm-hmm. And so he would he would outline things on the score, the parts that I could use. 
I could embellish or I could not use it all and, and write something totally different. I could do whatever I wanted to do. But the bottom line is, is it, it created a musical place for the front ensemble. So I wasn't just creating parts for them to have something to do. I was creating things that actually had musical contribution of what was going on. Um, but again, yeah, it was all done by pencil and, you know, and because of there was no virtual drum line, you know, when the guys actually moved in in the spring, I would have what I would call a week long lab time of figuring out what worked, what didn't work. Um, and would come out of that week with a very different book. But even after virtual drumline, I still went through that process, but maybe not quite as in depth once we had virtual drumline. Sure. And, and Brett, what was, were you working by hand at still, or were you using Finale, Sibelius or whatever? Well, that's, that's right around the time when the battery guys were like, okay, dude, we're done putting this in for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> what's that, Eric? That was the 2001 for me. <laughs> yeah. So I, because we, we used to call it NASA because, you know, we'd show up to camp, man, here come Eric and I with our pencils and paper and our, our, <laughs> our ideas and the young cats, man, the, you know, Mike McIntosh, John mm -hmm. Brennan, Gary Rudolph, all these guys are coming in. You know, it's like, there's like five or six laptops in one corner and they're all just on there doing their thing or, or they're on a break writing something for their band or something. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I remember they used to mess with me. I would come in and I'd, I'd start writing something on the computer while I was with them so I could make sure I, I was doing everything right. And then, and then I would take a, you know, take a break for a minute and then I'd come back and there'd be like one note head magnified to like <laughs> a thousand percent. It was as big as a screen. And I'd be like, oh my God, what happened? And they're all laughing because they're all like, yeah, command minus, command minus, command minus. But back in the day, it was like I, I was just getting started. But I, I, I remember that. I'm, I really owe that to Mike McIntosh because mm -hmm. he gave me, at the end of 90, I think it was, he gave me his compu old computer at the end of the season to take home. He goes, man, just just take it home and mess around with it. He calls me like in October and he goes, hey, dude, how's, how's it going with the computer? <laughs> and I go, it's awesome. I play solitaire every night. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally all I'd done on the computer was play solitaire. And he's like, well, we got camps coming, man. So you might want to, you might want to start figuring this out. So with that being said, yeah. Remember Daniel, it used to be uh, like woodblock was the snare sound mm -hmm. and then the, like a rototom. And then there was like a Tycho. I, I don't know. I don't even remember now. It was just, yeah, yeah. but we were still blown away with like, oh, this is awesome. You know, like the keyboard sounds that Eric would write, Gary puts them in. And if you heard him now, you'd be like, oh, my God, I can't hear this. <laughs> you know, it's it's just like Tinker Toys. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, Jim blows it all up with VDL in such a great way. And you get to hear many more things. But, yeah, that was definitely the beginning of, hey, man, I, I really do need to do this. And I'm very thankful for that because I needed that. I needed that push. So, yeah. So as a percussionist myself, and y'all talked about this a little bit with Richard, I tend to write more cues for electronics and front ensemble than maybe a brass or woodwind playing type arranger. Uh, Richard Saucedo, who was the brass composer and arranger from 2000 to 2008, is a percussionist, along with program coordinator Scott Coder. So I'm curious what you guys remember about working on a staff, a music design team that had four percussionists. I'm wondering if Saucedo ever came down and like pulled out the drumsticks, was like, no, do it this way. Or did Scott Coder ever want to write a few bars here and there? Like, <laughs> what was it like having four percussionists on that design team? I thought it was, I mean, sorry, I thought it was great. Um, <laughs> 
first of all, Richard, just start with him because what he was able to put down for Eric and I to listen to, um, because the timelines were very different. When you do original music, you have to realize that, okay, the last month I would have normally been listening to the resource music. Mm-hmm. I have not had that opportunity because the music is being created as we speak. So with that in mind, we might have resource music or, or musical ideas and feels that we thought that was going to be about. But until we got it from Richard, Eric and I really, really didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once we started to put pen to paper kind of thing, then, then Scott would, would be the helpful, you know, you know, maybe too much here, more here. What do you think about this? So it was, it was a well-blended, um, very comfortable everybody had their own space. There was no, and everybody was free to say, you know, it was kind of the rule was, look, best idea wins. You know, doesn't matter whose idea it is. If, if that's the best idea, then we, we run with that. You know, if that's Eric, then we got to run with Eric's idea. Well, I tell you about, from my perspective, um, it, having all those personalities involved, you know, uh, Scott Coder, Richard Sacedo, Brett, um, it really made my job easier. Uh, they would give, you know, uh, Scott would, you know, of course we had Richard's score with, you know, he had his, his cues written in. Uh, uh, Scott would give me a list of things to consider while I was doing it, you know, think about doing this here and this here. Um, Brett would write, you know, he usually would, he would go first and then write, and then he would, you know, write things into the score or, you know, have a percussion line where he would put ideas in for me to consider. Um, and with, you know, all that, to the reference material to work off of it, it was, I won't say it was easy, but it was, it was kind of easy, you know, just take the ball and run with it, you know? Uh, but again, a, a show like Niagara Falls, the music was so, uh, for me personally, inspiring. It's one of those shows where the music was just fun, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there was, there was, there was a lot of years like that, but that was one of the years where you just, I just enjoyed the flavor of the music. I watched that show, on DVD after the summer more than I've watched any other show I've ever done just because I enjoyed it that much, you know? Uh, but it, again, just going off, you know, what those guys, you know, uh, the ideas they would lay down and, you know, as Brett said, you know, uh, everybody parked the egos at the door, the, the best idea won, you know, and, and if, we, if you write something and, and somebody wasn't buying it, it's like, well, Hey, well, ha- think about doing this, try it this way. Or, uh, here, here's another idea to put with that, you know? So it, it was just, it was a, a definite trial, a constant trial and error. It wasn't just like, okay, the score's done. Here's the masterpiece that no, it wasn't that way at all. It <laughs> continued to sculpt it, you know, all through the winter, all through the summer. And at some point in the summer, you have to say, okay, no more changes, you know, because the guys have to get clean. <laughs> uh, but again, it, it's, there's, there's always twine, tiny tweaks all the way to the end for sure. All right, let's get into the show.
As Michael Boo wrote on DCI.org, six of the most barbaric, repetitive, stabbing brass chords ever heard on the drum corps field opened the show, followed by five more, and then four more just for good measure. During the breaks, there there's nonstop percussion virtuosity displayed by the battery and the front ensemble. In fact, I'd say the first 30 seconds leading into the first impact is basically y'all, in my words, saying, yeah, we won last year. We know it's an entirely new season, but we want to win again. Do y'all remember the discussions and decisions that ultimately led to those first 30 seconds being so percussive heavy right off the bat? Well, I think it was, if I remember correctly, um, Eric helped me out here, but um, I think we just made the decision that we wanted to come out and because a lot of times our shows would, would develop over that first 30, 45 seconds. You know what I mean? There'd be that sort of hello to the audience and here we come and then you know you kind of turn around and go and uh if i recall correctly it was just like man let's just let's just lay it out there man let's just let's just go for it right out of the gate and i think the aggressiveness of that moment um was sort of uh you've just been thrown into the niagara river because the whole movie or you know i call it the movie but what michael and andy did visually it's all about currents waves and eventually the falls and, uh, you know, you just go through in a winding river like that, you go through so many different um, stages, you know. Um, and I think for us, it was just really starting out aggressive and the water was moving fast and, and we're going to say something out of the gate, you know. And obviously, uh, with Drew Shanefield being there now in his third year, uh, him and his team from cadets, they came over in 98 and he's, I can't say enough great things about Drew. Uh, he's like a brother, too. And man, the, the, it, it was like, we finally had the horn line that was like, man, we can do this out of the gate. Like, let's do this, <laughs> you know, um, because we had the players and we had the guys to teach it. Eric, do you remember yeah, that came to be? pretty much uh, what I remember is we just want to hit them, you know, right between the eyes with it. You know, it's just like, let's, let's come out. Let's, let's be aggressive right off the, the, the right off the line. And, uh, you know, and I, I think we, we achieved that. So. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. But Eric, can you talk about your tricks and secrets to getting what I consider to be the best concert bass drum sound in all of pageantry? You know, th that wasn't a sample and it sure wasn't mic'd back then in the early 2000s. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a very different approach for concert bass drum. First off, the drum is tuned much higher than you would ever tune it in a concert hall setting. Uh-huh. Um, we had 40 inch drums. Um, and you know, it's, it's funny, Brett, I went back and looked at the, the 1999 video. We had four, we had four concert, four concert bass drums, excuse me. They were all 36 inch drums. Um, and I remember Scott Coder seeing us in 1999 and giving us a tape and going, uh, yeah, what's up with the concert bass drums? You know, <laughs> somebody uh, get a little happy here. <laughs> yeah, I did. So <laughs> we pulled it back to two concert bass drums. And that was when we first had the opportunity to use those really nice concert bass drums that Yamaha was putting out. You know, they just started putting out. Um, but had, you know, I had started spending time tuning the concert drums, you know, back in 1996 and figuring out what worked and what didn't. And the, what I've realized is if the drum sounds great right in front of it, yeah, it's probably not going to work upstairs mm -hmm. uh, or it's going to be too low pitch or it's going to be a little too flappy. Uh, but the 40 inch drums, we were tuning those to a C sharp. Uh, and when I say tuning them we're tuning both heads to a c sharp mm -hmm. i used to pull the drum side by side and i would try to true the head the best i could 
um, in the same manner you would a timpani, but a 40 inch head, that's really difficult to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you would just try to, you know, I, I would put, you know, I, I would true it. And then I, I would put one hand on the back of the head and I'd get a timpani mallet and go around the real, the edge of the head. And if I could get it to sing a, a true fundamental without too many overtones, you know, that's, that's what you would shoot for. Mm-hmm. You would try to get, you know, both drums to be exactly the same. And if, if so, I'd put them side by side. If you hit one drum and both drums would would uh, resonate, then you're in, in the right place. Uh, now, also, is we played the drums differently. We played them. You would the guys would play them dead center, as opposed to playing them a little bit off center. You know. Mm-hmm. And now, some people are going to listen to this and they're going to disagree with this. And <laughs> different approaches out there, but these drums were as much for the impact in your chest as much as anything. Yes. Um, so we would we would play them dead center. We would also play them with uh, heavier mallets. We would put, most of the time we'd play them with a gong mallet mm-hmm. and the guys, when they played them, they wouldn't just kind of hit it. No, they would hit it. You know, and I, I used to have during their all day rehearsals, we would have, you know, a, a time where we talk about how to do this when we practice this, because when you hit, would hit the drum, you were hitting it like you were trying to hit the back head. And I know I'm, I'm real cautious about how I say this because I don't want to give anybody the wrong impression. I don't want anybody to start abusing equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's what you had to do to get that that bass drum to, to project all the way upstairs in, you know, in a, in a large football stadium. Um, but just really t- constantly tweaking the drums, you know, and in, in my role, uh, with the core, it, by the end of the summer, you know, I, it's like, I, I don't, I didn't have as much, you know, to do because there would be somebody that teched on a daily basis. And so I spent a lot of time, especially the week of finals, tr- just, hanging out with the concert bass drums, tuning them daily, just tweaking them constantly, trying to get them to sound great, you know? And so it's just, it's just a a lot of care that goes into it. You just have to pay attention. You have to pay attention to them every single day. (laughs) That's, that's the trick right there. Every single answer. I apologize. Oh, no. See everyone, all the guests always apologize. Like, no, this is what everyone, everyone wants the secret sauce. You know, too many people are like, oh, I can't share too much. You might copy off me and beat me one day. But no, this is great. We we want this. Now, now, Brett, this was the last year and the last drum corps to win using bugles. And I'm curious if you remember if it was harder, maybe more fun, crazier to write for a brass line that used bugles instead of B-flat instruments. I I really, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't anything. Uh, for me, it was actually... Uh, a relief <laughs> because <laughs> I I just wanted to hear better instruments, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, for us, I wanted to see our guys on better equipment. So the concept able to be in a key that bands could purchase, and we had the possibility to have because we didn't have a, a lot of money like most drum corps. You know, they live on right. just a string. They really mm-hmm. do. Um, and these kids, you know, deserve the best that we can get them. And by getting onto the B flat instruments, for me, it wasn't more as much about the music side as it was just looking out for the kids and knowing, man, the horn players, cause you know, we get new drums every two years. Yeah. Well, we get horns when we could afford to get horns. And all of a sudden it's like, you got, you guys are going to have new horns every 
know, because once we purchase a set, then we can resell and we can mm-hmm. have a market for it. So for me, I, I think that was fantastic for the activity personally. Um, I think it's it's really helped a lot. And uh, I, I enjoy the sound. I, I When I go back and listen to the G, um, there's definitely, um, I guess, high or treble, you know, I guess, to my right. ear. You know, the way they played lap back then and just the instrument itself. Um, I don't, I, I like the warmth we have nowadays. But when you do hear that warmth on those bugles, you're like, wow, those kids could really play because mm-hmm. that... That's not easy to do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And Eric, I would say that that changed your writing style to go from like string sharp keys to flat keys. But knowing Richard's scores, you were probably still writing an A and C and E. Like it probably didn't change much for you in terms of key signature or anything like that, right? Yeah, there, there wasn't a lot that changed. Uh, again, I think the one thing about it going to the concert instruments is just the sound was so much more pure to me. Um, I, I even before that, the, the 2001 season, I took some uh, trumpet lessons so I could learn more about the instrument that I was going to be writing for mm-hmm. uh, or writing with, I should say. Um, I, I didn't spend too much time doing it. I was just playing long tones, things like that. But learning just at least I, I took an interest in it to try to to learn more about those instruments. Uh, uh, but again, to me, it's just where it went from there. Um, you know, the, the, the staff that was involved with the, the brass instruments, the, the concert instruments, uh, uh, David Bertman and Mark McGahee and, and, and those guys, what they, they came in and did with that, it, it really, you know, uh, it continued to elevate the, the quality of sound. Now, Drew Shanefield and his staff, they were doing an incredible job, you know, mm-hmm. with, with, with the bugles. I mean, and, uh, and again, it was, it was a pleasure, but it was, just, it was just a natural progression of the activity. It just the quality of everybody and all the music continue to get better and it, and it continues to get better you know richard really he doesn't write in a key signature <laughs> there's yes. never a key on his music and you, you, i mean eric and i'd be like we go to drew sometimes and be like uh what what chord is this because the way he would stack notes you're like well this could be three different this could be three different <laughs> chords you know he just uh he has that ability. He just hear, like Eric does. I mean, they, they hear color mm-hmm. so well that color is just an inherent, like notes are just paint, you know, and it's not thought of in a, in the int- usual intrinsic aesthetic, uh, mental mindset of music theory. It's mm-hmm. thought of, uh, more in color. And I think that is what makes Richard, Richard, you know, and sets him apart. 100%. Yeah. There, there are so many arrangers that are just focused on getting back to B flat. And as Richard said, he goes, I'm just going where the music takes me. And if it takes me to A, it takes me to A. Let's just let's just do it. So. this first climax we have a syncopated timpani groove combined with some light stabs followed by some long legato chords in the brass and through this all we get a sting of non-stop notes coming for the pit eric i fully acknowledge i'm going to constantly ask you to reveal your secret sauce during this podcast uh, can you talk about your approach to writing these runs in terms of scoring and orchestrations intervals modes etc well uh 
a lot of it was just me doodling around on the marimba at the time, figuring out, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. Uh-huh. Uh, there, there's really no magic there other than, you know, just trying to figure out licks. Uh, I can tell you is my writing evolved. I really, you know, um, I, I think when I was younger, I didn't always pay as much attention to the, the brass as I should. And sometimes I would I would find myself going uh, uh, in a in our, uh, I guess and uh, getting into a departure from the, what the brass would be doing. Um, and as as I got older, I, I really started paying more attention to that. But a lot of times I wanted the parts to lay you know on the board real well for the guys, right. so that you know if they're going to spend hours doing this, I didn't want it to be awkward for them. I wanted it to feel natural. I wanted it to you know to be easy for them to play. Um, but so much of it, I, I wanted it to have the, again, I wanted to have the presence and I wanted it to project, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I know some people would again, criticize me for not writing, you know, an, enough lines going on because I, I would always write, you know, two to three lines, but mm-hmm. I started looking at this score and I realized that, you know, I was writing more, you know, more lines at that point. Um, but again, it, there was still a lot of unison writing. Maybe, you know, your cinema rimbos were pl- playing up, up an octave, your item rimbos were playing down an octave. Um, and in that case, you know, a lot of times, sometimes I would have the outer marimbas playing down the octave playing louder because they're playing in a lower octave, but they're playing maybe with a softer mallet. Mm-hmm. So it, it gives you the, the presence in the body, you know, uh, it makes that a little bit more present. Uh, but again, it, it was all about having musical contribution and not giving the ear too much to digest and, and really also uh, projecting. So it, it did. It, it, if, you, if you heard it without the pitch, you go, wait, something's missing that you, you know, that, it, that it, it, meaning it had that, that contribution uh, that you might not notice if the pit was playing, but if it was not playing, you, you would definitely miss it. Yes. So, I, I don't know I if would, that answered your question or not. It, it does. I would definitely miss it. I don't know if anybody else would. They all would. So after that second impact, we have a unison rhythm played by the battery and pit, followed by the return of that timpani groove. And then we have this jazzy run that is played on the mallets combined with the tenors and snares. At least to my ears, it was tenors and snares. Brett, when these percussion windows and breaks happen, what's the process for lining up the writing between you and Eric? Do you lay out the unison hits and rhythms and say, have at it? Do you write your features first and then send them to Eric to write on top? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Um, that's a great question. Um, typically, what I do when I start to put put notes down is I write what I hear first. Um, I don't, sometimes that's at the beginning and sometimes it's in the middle. Um, so I go where I'm hearing, hearing the initial thought where I have the most inspiration first and then I'll let things grow around it. Um, I find that if I do that, then I can always send things to Eric and say, well, here's where I'm going with this. But I think right before this, you guys take the lead here. Or, you know, if, it, if Eric's burning one of those nice, especially in the Niagara show, you know, where there's some flat sevens and some nice bluesy vibe mm-hmm. in there. If, if they're up front burning and, and we need that keyboard sustainer, in, in my mind, it's the violins, you know, really in the symphony, mm-hmm. then I... Go. I might go to a long triplet roll over the top of that, and that that gets out of their way, but it adds just a little bit of shimmer over the top. So I'm not thinking about it 
drumistically. I'm thinking about it color-wise. Um, so we have a lot of places. Now, if it's a unison situation where things are going to get big, then I try to make sure, A, there's one big thing from the battery before the pit has to get big so that they feel good. You know, mm -hmm. like kicking a big band. If they feel good coming in, then we're going to have a lot better chance of lining up some of those unison moments between the front and the back. So I do think there are oral cues that we can give as an arranger um, to help the front ensemble deal with what they need you know, to deal with. So there's a small percussion break that leads us into the third impact. It's, it's heavier in battery than front ensemble, as the front's contribution is mainly accents with cymbals and accessories. Eric, do you get leeway in deciding what instruments to accentuate the battery breaks? Are these dictated by bread, or is it truly a 50-50 collab throughout the writing and editing process? Well, I mean, actually, we kind of do that together and a lot of times brett may have a color he wants he goes i want, I want to have these actions you know duplicated on zill bell or splash symbols and brett has a great ear for symbol sounds much better than my ear hmm. and he, he would say hey think about using this or you know maybe you know accent this with a a, a china or something like that um, but we would we'd work on those things together and you know just going back and listen to this score there was there was a lot of ideas with zillbell and woodblocks you know where where they're accenting things going on in the battery but again i remember that that was definitely a a group effort on, on many levels and, and sometimes i would even go past with you know the, maybe some of the guys in the, the percussion staff would say hey what about this you know or you know, they, they'd say, do you think about doing this? I mean, it, we were open to everybody's ideas. It wasn't like, no, you know, stay in your lane. We wouldn't take that approach at all yeah. uh, because everybody, they, they were all musicians. They were, they were musicians, they were drummers, percussionists, you know, and so everybody has ideas. And, and the, the more people, you know, more ideas you have, the, the better the product's going to be. About two minutes into this opener, we get into the dark and haunting sound from the low brass that is mixed with the chimes and the metallics. Again, Eric, how did you approach the use of metallics and the scoring to get more than just a bright and shiny sound? I mean, this is it. It sounds deeper and, and more weight than probably just what it is. I'm curious how you went about creating that. Uh, combination of instruments, using chimes and barbs, you know, uh, things like that. Uh, but also I, a lot of times I would, with some of the vibraphone uh, work in the, in the this show, I didn't want to hear the attack of the vibraphone. I wanted it to be more like a synthesizer, like where you just push the, the keys down and you mm -hmm. hear this sound. Um, so it was always trying to achieve the darkest sound I possibly could. And that was one of the approaches during this, this era with the, with the front ensemble was everything we do. We wanted it to be as dark and warm as we could possibly get it. Um, I started having the guys play a, uh, excerpt from Venus 
from the, mm. the Planet Show in 1995. We started that in 1996, but it was one of the it was the last thing we would play before we put on the greens and went to the gate in our warm up because I wanted that to be the last thing that they had they heard in their head before they went to the field because that's what they were trying to achieve with everything they did. If you're playing with a brass mallet on a glockenspiel, well, you're still thinking it has to be how can I play this as warmly as possible, you know. So it was just everything with every approach was how can we get a, a nice warm dark sound with this and then what how can you do that with regard to scoring or doubling of instruments oh that's a great answer that's going to segue into a question i asked later on but During this section, there's also a feature-like section for the bass drums. Brett, your bass drums are tuned so well. I'm curious about your approach to tuning the bass drums for year to year and how that might have evolved since 2000, or if it if it ain't broke, I haven't I haven't fixed it since then. <laughs> you, you know what? A lot of it is. If it's not broke, don't fix it. <laughs> and uh, I'll be honest with you, we for us, you know, every drum corps I think um, has their bass drum identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, every instrument does, but because back in the day, you know, Daniel, before cell phones and all this, um, you you could hear the bass drums like three blocks from the stadium. Yeah. So you knew everybody's bass line because that told you who was on the field right now and how long you had in case you, you weren't sure, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and like I remember the cadet sound, man, when Hannum started having those cats roll on top. It was like, man, I, I know that, that sound. So when I hear that, man, we got to start heading to the gate. Um, but... Uh, long story you know i i it was for us it was we call it dad major d a d a d f sharp a and but now we have 32 mm-hmm. 28 24 20 right. four inches between every drum and then you throw the 18 on top right um eventually that started to evolve a little bit um when i was at regiment and even at cabs a little bit that we started to go with a slightly thinner Yamaha, uh, the last few years at cabs, um, uh-huh. it, by accident, it accidentally got shipped, you know, it was, it wasn't the big as deep out 32. Right. And we really felt like that was really better for our, our, our guys, you know, health wise. Sure. So we stuck with that and then we altered things a little bit, maybe, you know, by a step or something, but, um, no, that dad major always seemed to work out and, and just the technique, you know, the guys were, we're playing with, um, I think there's been a huge, evol- I mean, the bass drum evolution is off the hook, you know, I mean, what these cats play now is like, <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. It's, it's crazy. And, and it's so cool. Um, but I really, I, I think it was a combination of those two things, you know, and of course we've always used Remo heads and, and, uh, you know, for me, the sound that the resonance that we're able to get is, is huge. <laughs> So we're pretty much pedal to the metal to the end of the opener. And we have the return of the stabs with what seems like the battery doubling those stabs while the pit goes note crazy. I'm curious about the decision made to either use moments like this for battery notes versus pit notes, or was it as simple as the beginning featured a bunch of battery during the stabs? So the ending should be a bunch of pit notes. Do you remember how y'all came about creating that last moment? It's just return of the stabs and now it's more pit versus the opening was more battery. 
Well, we had such a strong tenor line that it was like, yeah, let's throw these guys in front. Mm-hmm. Let's because we need the high and the low with the with the ensemble. So we the way Michael had it staged was a tenor line was in front, and I just opened it up for one last moment for them, and we left the space for them. And as I look at the score here, um, you know, it's it's a lot of things that line up with the with the pit, but at the same time there were triplet based rolls. There were even sextuplet runs in the bass line over sixteenth notes in the keyboards. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But because of the way those those come across more as you know, you don't identify that as much rhythmically as you do melodically, so it works. Mm-hmm. So for me it was about just keeping that extra energy with the front ensemble because we've heard them alone and that was kind of the first time underneath the stabs of really um reinforcing what eric was doing up front would you agree with that eric <laughs> eric's yeah, like no I'm, man he was all over my stuff dude. <laughs> well i'm just sitting here trying to remember because I, I to be honest with you i don't remember how this evolved into what it is <laughs> um but i know the inning was very aggressive and it, it's one of those things it just seemed like well this is what needs to happen right here. They're, they're, these guys need to be driving in you know 16th notes and going for it. Um, and it was one of those those times where we uh, threw you know it was a unison line, but you had you know uh, a lot of the guys playing up the octave. One guy pl- in looking at the score, one guy playing down the octave. Um, but again, the the guys were playing very hard. They you know we we would grip the mallets towards the back you know and we would really play hard. We played in the center of the bar, you know, which again, that's, that's another philosophical conversation. People are going to disagree with some, cause some people like it halfway between. And if I'm playing in a concert hall, then yes. Um, I, I like, I like the different, uh, the different options you can mm-hmm. get from different places you play on the bar. But in, in the drum corps situation, you're trying to get the, the most, we were trying to get the most pure, fundamental possible and also with the most projection possible and and that's where you know we that seemed to be our sweet spot but we were playing very hard on the instruments but it didn't look like we were playing as hard as they, the guys actually were we you know they they played as hard as they could without actually pounding or uh, abusing the instruments um, but it but you wanted it to to look like it was being it was very finesseful um, again if it's everybody has a uh, a different philosophy when it comes to front ensemble approach. Um, some people will listen to this and go, "I just totally disagree with that." You know? <laughs> and again, it's it's really what works for you and, and for your ensemble. Um, but in this section right here, I mean, it was an aggressive part, and you you know you wanted these sixteenth notes to really cut through, and because the whole drum corps was aggressive, I mean, everybody was running and gunning, and you know you couldn't it, your your sound had to be on the same level as everybody else. So, you know, we through scoring technique and just playing aggressive, uh, it just it, it we hopefully uh, achieved that that same uh, level of uh, of. Uh, I guess aggression that the rest of the core was. And for the longest time, no one used symbols in the pit like the Cavaliers use symbols. You talked about this a little bit earlier, Eric. And, and I think the reason other groups have started to use them so well is because they either came from performing in a Cavaliers percussion section and or they just studied and copied that sound. Uh, now, Eric, you mentioned that Brett um, really kind of had the ear for the symbol. So, Brett, can you can you talk a little bit about your approach to not only the scoring and the usage of symbols, but maybe you, you, Eric can chime in about the 
the placement amongst the performers because it wasn't just like you had a rat guy and had all the symbols. I mean, these are spread out. So can you talk about how you approached the symbols? Yeah, I mean, for Eric and I, it was always the default in in a general situation. Usually Daniel was uh, on the side of warmth um, because symbols are inherently bright, um, especially when played by multiple players. Now, with all the different colors we have to choose from with the Zildjian gear, it was like, it was like Candyland, you know what I mean? (laughs) But you get to know like, um, certain sounds you want. The Constantinople sound was our, our go-to up front for Mm -hmm. the warmth and sonority. And, and we're talking 19s, uh, Mm. 18s, 19s, and 20s, uh, mixed together. It was never the same symbol. You might see four Constantinopoles, but two might be of a different size than the other two. And then how we combine that with a K on one side, or, you know, when they used to make make that piggyback effects and you had your high-low China, and then, you you know, it was just like, man, there's so many ingredients in the soup. And we try to be real, you know, Scott was good about this. He'd say, man, we got to be careful now not to overuse particular colors too much mm-hmm. because then you get, you get numb to them. So we try to have those moments like, you know, the next movement in this show, it's like there, there's absolutely nothing that's going to be um, on the bright side of, of mm-hmm. you know, the, the spectrum. It's going to be warmth. It's going to be these other colors because we just got done with the opener, man, and we got some some nice, you know, China stuff in there and some other bright things. And by the way, you mentioned those Zilbells earlier. I, I just real forgot about this, but uh, a lot of times you'll hear the Zilbell combined with like a Glock or a vibraphone kind of playing that what we called that for us, that was the riverboat bell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it goes throughout the show and you hear it in different places, just, you know, and Eric would orchestrate it differently in different, at different times. But it was, that was kind of one of our little just inside, like, creative, we want this bell to keep coming back, you know, from a design perspective. So that's another example of using colors um, intuitive to the music. And I remember in 01, we were doing a show based on four different composers when we did that, uh, the Four Corners, and Matheny was the opener. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I said to Eric was, okay, we need to order two flat top rides. (laughs) <laughs> like that before we wrote a note it was like yeah. I, i've listened to Matheny for decades and it's like yeah that's wordico to me that's wordico you know now it's sanchez but i mean back then it was that flat top sound so that's that's kind of how we looked at the symbol colors you know just as intuitive or intuitively it's not really the right word but you know um really as a focused color and sound that we we're looking for not just an impact instrument did you set, did you decide the setup of the symbols? Were you spread them out, Eric, or did, did, how'd that work? I, I would, you know, pretty much we would decide that as as we were, uh, as we originally write the the symbol parts. You'd kind of figure out, you know, and then as you needed sounds, you would add symbols or or take away or whatever, you know. So it was just kind of a, a work in progress all the time, uh, you know. But Brett was talking about the Constantinopoles, and another symbol that I always liked was the K Custom Dark mm-hmm. Ride. Yeah. That, that was really, it was a, it was a 20 inch ride symbol, but it's nice, dark suspended symbol. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, at first you're like, what, you using a ride symbol for a suspended symbol? It's like, yeah, it's awesome. You know, mm-hmm. uh, 
but it's like you know in, too much of any one sound is you know is not a good thing so you you definitely have to have your 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 16 inch a's and things like that so your, your brighter sounds and um so it doesn't uh, uh sound the same every single time you play the cymbals Right on. Well, right. And Eric, you, I mean, Eric's the first guy I know of um, that really, you know, he has so much respect for instruments. We always played during the day, we would play all cymbal sounds half volume. Mm-hmm. We would never stress the cymbal in the heat. We would have practice gongs. We never played performance gongs during the day and they, they were never played as, as aggressively as they are at night. So the gear always sounded like you wanted the gear to sound. Yep, so those little things, that's for sure. So now we get to part two, and we open with a staple of Cavalier's front ensembles for two decades. It's big, fat, wide open rolls. And even without amplification, that sound just filled up the stadium. How'd you do it, Eric? Inquiring minds want to know. Well, um, when you do double lateral rolls, <laughs> um, one of the things you know we would figure out is, what chords, how were they voiced to give you the, the most electric sound? Uh, if everybody just played exactly the same thing, it didn't work. So say uh, some guys would go up an inversion. So I, I would use perfect fifths. If you're playing uh, F and C, F and C, you know, well, the, the outer guys are playing, you know, uh, from C to F. The inner guys are playing from F to C, you know, and just you fill it out like that. Now, that's a that's a very uh, basic uh, analogy there. Yeah. So if you're doing chords, you, you, you know, make sure everybody you, you, you experiment with it around until you figure what sounds the best. So the guys playing those lateral roles, you have to figure out what sounds the best. Uh, this was also a time when we were experimenting with things. We used to raise our resonators. And, you know, then people say, oh, yeah, we put our resonators in the highest settings. Like, no, we were putting higher than that. <laughs> we had to figure out how we could get them high enough, but not so high that when you played hard that the bar hit the resonator. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is because DCI was outside. And outside in the summertime, it's, it's more than likely going to be humid. And when it's humid, the air moves slower. You know, mm-hmm. so if, 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 yeah, I would always use the example, I'd put some, push the pedal down on the vibe and I would play just a F arpeggio all the way up. Then I grab the resonators and I'd pull them up. It would get louder, but it would get shorter because it would use that, that vibration faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were constantly, you know, experimenting with how to get the warmest sound, uh, but doing different voicings, but also what, what were the right mallets for it? You know, uh, that these, this beginning double lateral section, the vibes are actually playing with some of the Robin Engelman 701s. Oh which, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, people would think, what, why would you do such a, such a crazy thing or such people say a stupid thing, but it actually, it worked, you uh-huh. know? Uh, and then also this, this 
intro here, this there were several things going on. First off, the vibes are hitting those big unison chords. Mm-hmm. And that was where I was talking about that synthesizer sound. You don't hear the the attack. You just hear it's like somebody pushes a button down on, a, on an electronic keyboard, and it's this huge sound. It just sounded great. And that was the Robin Ingman 706, I think is what it was. Because we used the 705s, they, you'd have to, they were just a little bit too soft. You'd hear too much of the latex in the mallet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, this with the 705, uh, 706s, were, they, they were the sweet spot mallet for that particular section. Um, another thing we did is when we were doing the laterals, and that's actually was Brett's idea, is we were playing and all of a sudden there would be a wave from side two all the way over to side one. So everybody would just accent it just down the line, just real fast, like, you know, mm-hmm. and you just see the mallets raised because it was waves and that was a wave going through the front ensemble and go back the other direction. You know, we did that, you know, several times, uh, but it was an opportunity to, for us to, uh, exercise that warmth that we talked about so much. It's like, this was the perfect session for it. Like, <laughs> look, how, how warm can we make this sound? Cause you just wanted us to be this blanket of sound that you didn't even realize what it was until it wasn't there. You know, mm-hmm. and if you heard it without you go, wait a minute, something's missing. But when it's there, it's just, you know, it's just something that it, it just, just warms and makes you, makes you feel good. And you don't even know why. Yeah. Would you say the Cavaliers front ensemble had the uh, biggest forearms in all of DCI because of those uh, Engelmans? <laughs> well, we, we used to, you know, spend spend time with our laterals for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those Engelmans. Yeah. Well, you know, the sparseness of this first 30 seconds is so, so wonderful. It's only broken up by, as uh, Brett mentioned, the fantastically, the metallic clusters with the ice bell, the ship bell, zeal bell, whatever, whatever you want to call it in the, in the metallics and a wonderfully placed bass drum and tam tam goosh. Like it's just, oh, it's just, it's so awesome. And, and we get to the first impact and we return to those roles. However, there seem to be fatter and maybe more ripple roles. So I think, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said lateral roles at the beginning. Maybe, I don't know what the second, after the impact. Um, what, what kind of roles were those, Eric, just to clarify for me? Or were they the same? <laughs> yeah, the same, just double lateral roles. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. You know? And the reason <laughs> I refer to them is, is double laterals because we were very into actually cranking the wrist and not in the, the flop. Uh, with the inner mallets, um, so each each note is getting equal uh, billing when when played. Because if you if you you know, and again, 
this philosophical. Some people are going to say, no, I don't agree with that. But <laughs> for, for me, if you're doing the flop, you know, the outer mallets are pressing into the bar to make yeah. the inner mallets flop down. So there's a little bit of dampening going on. Uh, right. so I, I wanted to really use the, the wrist and, and make sure that the guys were cranking it out so that, you know, they could get a big sound, but all the notes were equal. Mm-hmm. I don't know who would disagree with you, Eric. I mean, I, I don't want to hear from them. <laughs> so, so, okay. So things start to pick up with the battery entering in a pseudo fanfare by the brass. And as this was the most original of movements in the show, I'm curious how the two of you worked with Richard and Scott to craft and create this piece. So yes, it checked all the boxes and still allowed Michael to do what he does best with the drill. And, and you know, this whole opening is like we've talked about, it's very sparse. It, it kind of just sits, it, it's waves, as y'all have mentioned. So can you talk a little bit about how the work of this being the most original work? Because this is a, a foreshadowing of what was going to happen for the next three to four years with the Cavaliers. Do you remember how that, that worked, uh, Brett? Well, what I recall is just that this moment really being about um, sort of that calm in the river where you've you've kind of been through some rapids in in the opener and some stronger currents and now it's time to just you know you you're finally feeling a little safe and comfortable you mm-hmm. know like some of the moves in here were visually i just remember i think there was one spot where it was like we call it it was like dropping the rock meaning dropping a rock in a pool of clear water just standing water and then the ripples went out from there visually mm-hmm. and i just remember that when i when i wrote the battery stuff here it was all about just little colors of texture mm-hmm. that to me were like just you know how you sit on the riverbank and you see just multiple waves kind of coming into the side but they're not mm-hmm. they're not big they're just you know little little sounds yeah. and essentially you know eric has that little motive that cha 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 you know on the keyboards and then eventually we take that over at the end to kind of complete that thought right yeah so <clears throat> you know again extending being the color underneath Eric's motific idea and then keeping that alive in the battery. When you when you keep a motive alive, it allows the listener time to get it. And then they feel more attached to the music because everyone likes to get it. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, there's nothing that feels good better than getting it. And uh, I think to have gone a completely different direction for a drumistic purpose would have missed the, well, no pun intended, missed the boat on this one, Danny. <laughs> so, Eric, I need to ask you, do you like writing ballads? Because I think there is a disconnect between music folks and visual folks. So when it comes to ballads, it seems like visual folks just like, oh, if I never have to do another ballad again, I'd be happy. Yes. But, you know, it seems like if there's any time to shine, it's the ballad for the front ensemble, right? It, it is. You know, um, I find it very difficult to write ballads, to be honest with you. Uh-huh. Um, I, I find it difficult to... Uh, find something new to say. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And because uh, I, I don't think I'm really creative in, in doing writing ballads. Um, this one was unique, though, uh, because it did uh, lend a, a lot of opportunities. Um, just like that, 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 bup, 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 then goes into the next section and it just laid itself out perfectly. Okay, take that now, modulate it, you know? Yeah. That, of course, this is not. really a ballad at this point (laughs) right yeah yeah this is more aggressive um and and get the end of that section it's it's a it's a full 2d section that Mm -hmm. goes with the rundown of the keyboards taking it into the you know the next section which is that front ensemble 
uh, feature. And, and again, I struggled with that front ensemble feature. It's like, okay, you know, we're going to have this melody and what do we play? You know? And I'm like, all right, let's, let's just do some, some uh, sequential sticking arpeggios in the marimbas, you know, outline the chords. Yeah. Let's just, let's uh, just do this and create but, one of the most I wanted to get pit breaks. Dark sound with between the chimes and and using the the nine oh threes on the Glockenspiel uh, and using the warmest vibe mallet you could um, with that melody. But again, it just you just it worked, uh, but it, it wasn't. Uh, I felt a, I don't know. I just you're going. Yes, it worked. We won DCI. We won best drums. Dude, Eric is so hard on himself. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times it'd be like. Wow, man, we come out of rehearsal or something, or I'd hear something for the first time after he'd had what we call laboratory time, you know, we would do together, sometimes him by himself with the pit. And then I'd come walking by, and I'd be like, wow, dude, that that sounds gorgeous. That's beautiful. Yeah, I don't know, Brett. I'm gonna, you know, and then he, I'd be like, stop. Just let's go get a beverage. It's, everything's going to be okay. But, you know, he, he's meticulous. But I, he is hard on himself, for sure. Yeah, well, the the greats usually uh, are. I, I think we're all hard on ourselves, on you know, when we're doing things like that. Because Brett's the same way, you know. I mean, we 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 would scrutinize every single thing we did, and you know, we would scrutinize it. And sometimes, you know, you can go too far, and you'd have to pull it back, and mm-hmm. you know. It's, but you you just you just wanted to get it right, you know. And right is subjective. I understand that, but you wanted to listen to it and feel great about it. After the ballad picks up and gets aggressive, much like Water Can, it calms down and we're led into a fantastically written and orchestrated pit moment. And I know that David Gillingham doesn't have ownership of chromatic mediants, but whenever I hear that kind of harmonic language being used, especially in percussion, I tend to associate that with stained glass, concertina for four percussion, sacrificial rite, etc. Now, you talked about Venus being the last thing that you had the front ensemble play before putting on the the costumes and heading onto the field. I'm curious how much concert percussion ensemble literature influenced and inspired your style of writing for the outdoors cuz it is it sounds like it's based in what we call serious concert percussion ensemble literature, right? Like it's not just oh, I'm playing mallets for drum corps. Like there is a lot of sophistication in what you bring to the to the table of drum corps. Well, first off, thank you for the compliment that's very kind um and the answer to that question is is um i didn't really pay much attention to percussion ensemble <laughs> oh well we'll erase that question from the well oh, don't tell doc Shitroma. <laughs> well, no no it, it, it had nothing to, to do with uh you know what i did in college it, it was it was what was right for the music at the time mm-hmm. you know and and that's literally you know the way the only way you could approach it what works what works for this section what works with 
the horns, what, you know, what, you know, for, for what you're trying to achieve at that point, mm-hmm. you know, I, I couldn't say, well, I really kind of want this to, to, to sound like a, uh, um, crown of thorns, or I want it to sound, you know, like stained glass. No, you can't, you can't do that. It's just like, mm-hmm. what, what, what does the music call for? Right. You know, so I, I, I would just always approach it. I never really thought about it the other way, if that makes sense. It does. It does. I, 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 sorry, apologize for asking that question. So Dr. Choma, as we said, we, we all, we all apologize Again, to you. For no, no disrespect to because <laughs> it, it wasn't about that, you know? Right, right. We're heading into the main climax of the ballad. And once again, this is for Eric. We, we hear the iconic Eric Johnson arpeggios. And Eric, I would argue that this is maybe the most copied signature or ism of your writing style throughout all the marching arts, whether it's indoor percussion, marching band, drum corps. And, and who would have thought simple arpeggios made more complex by the underlying metric of cellarando and decellarandos during a build and impact. You spoke earlier, you spoke often about clarity, transparency, volume. So I'm assuming, do you remember how and when you stumbled on that with the arpeggios and said, boy, does that sound good? You mean when the brass are playing chords, we were playing the... Yeah. I have to give credit where credit's due. I mean, that came from Richard. Richard threw something out there, and I'm like, that's such a great idea. Well, can we can we make the momentum get faster towards the end so the energy builds? And so you go from six tuplets to 30-second notes, you know? And that's a device that I still use to this day. I mean, I... I don't do much writing, but I have one writing project that Brett and I do together, and that's with Imachi in Japan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I use that device every single year, Brett. You know, you can uh, chime in on that for sure, because it just it just works. It, it gives yeah. it gives a building energy to you know to the the front. Yeah, I copy that every year as well. So. So the end of this ballad is pretty much just a recap of the opening with the fat keyboard rolls and the sparse stabs by the metallics. And it's just, it's so choice. It's so tasty. It's just perfect choices made all around for writing within the minimalist palette set by Richard Saucedo. And then part three. In talking with Michael Gaines about Spin Cycle, I said that that third movement was my favorite of all the third movements from 2000 to 2003. But I have to say, 
that Niagara Falls is a close second, especially because it started the trend of the rock out third movements and because of the aforementioned lick, which we'll get to. This movement is the closest to the original work with the largest differences coming from both of your contributions. The whole opening is built on a timpani groove with some claves adding into the groove and brass interjections of the Niagara Falls theme. It's almost like a controlled cacophony of sounds. And while there are brass contributions, this is definitely a percussion-led movement. Brett, how did you craft the battery stuff that accompanies all of that brass writing as well as that fat timpani groove? This was one of those pieces where we had more um, more lead time on a little bit because it, there was, you know, the source material of, you know, Michael Doherty's Niagara Falls. Not sure what Richard would do with it, of course, mm -hmm. um, but at least from being able to sit down and, and throw a gnome on with that, or actually not a gnome, but the, uh, the, the music, you know, and just listen to it and spend some pad time. Um, this one just felt like it wrote itself because when you get to 192, you really start to <laughs> realize <laughs> what your, you know, your options are, mm -hmm. right? Um, number one, 30 second notes feel great at 192. Sure. Um, number two, I started in 99, 2001, writing a lot more five-lit rolls too. Um, <laughs> but, but. You know, a lot of people look at that like, well, man, you know, oh, it's so it's another technique thing, you know, take it to critique, show the guy. It's like, no, 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 no. The the whole purpose of the five-lit roll, the one note value slower, allowed for projection and space between the notes that mm -hmm. had a different color and presence at these fast tempos. Right. So for me, it was about that. Um, so for me, I tried to make this very, again, drum set oriented. So this is what I would call a very linear opening. Okay. Because there's not a lot of verticality. You know, it kind of goes through the voices. It starts in the snare line and works its way through the tenors and the bass voice. There might be some buzz color on top from here, you know, here and there. But overall, it's in, in essence starting to just throw out some morsels for every, every section, leave some breathing room. And then that allowed Eric to get a little bit more ostinato based mm -hmm. in some of the, the keyboard stuff. Um, and really set up a sense of, of total energy. So the energy from the front ensemble actually allowed us to ride on top very comfortably. So I didn't feel like we needed to be a super pulse center as opposed to a more nuanced uh, technical moment, I guess. So up to that point, there hasn't been overt groove. Like you get the uh, doon, 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 doon. You get those, you get a feeling of groove. But towards the end of this phrase, you got this bass drum, doon, 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 ka, doon, 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 ka, which leads us into only a hint of the lick. We're getting there, folks. <laughs> Before getting us to the first main climax of the movement. Now, Brett, do you remember where you said that you could tell us where this... How did that come, come to be? Well, first of all, again, coming from a drum... Uh, I'd have to credit Steve Gadd and Steve Jordan and David <laughs> Garibaldi and, I mean, a whole list of guys that were like... I When I hear their stuff, you know, it's like, I hear that, uh -huh. and that's what I was hearing. You know, in fact, the other day, Mac, Michael McIntosh and I were talking, and, 
and he uh, he sent me the judges tape from 2000, just out of nowhere, oh, like wow. Charlie Poole on the field, and and all he said in the email was, "I remember how pumped you were about rock and roll at the end." <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was the whole email. And I'd forgotten that, you know, and then I listened to it. And if you're talking about the lick. So don't, is that the lick? Because you had me so amped up, dude. I, yes, we're getting there. We're, I don't don't okay, tell me. Don't I, okay. talk about the lick yet. Okay, I'm not going to talk about it. No, that didn't happen. Uh, cut. Take two. Take two, please. Uh, but yeah, for me, it was like, man, we're going to we're going to really display our wares because the battery just had you know, that two minutes to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. So it's a time for us to have more presence now. Again, going back to Scott's ideas and contrast always of, you know, what's the next dish in this great meal of five courses or whatever. And we just want to get that next one out. So for me, this was like starting to really like heat it back up again. In case you didn't remember us from the opener. Yeah, this is what we're going to do now. <laughs> right, right. So, and, you know, bef before we get to that lick, <laughs> we're almost there. All right. The next 30 seconds are all percussion based on the source material with slight brass interjections. And it's something that y'all not only kept using and evolving over the next few years, but in many ways it set the stage for how percussion breaks can utilize the brass. Like it used to be, here's your minute long drum break, right? And you know, the, the band, the core rather drew, marched and the color guard tossed flags. But y'all started doing the sort of the vignette of the drum break, drum break feature, and then trumpet, you know, it just, y'all merged it like quote unquote real music would do. It didn't just stop, you know, you started, do you remember how the creation of these percussion windows with brass interjections, uh, front ensemble interjections took place over the years? Cause this seems to be like the first year I think that y'all really kind of just like leaned into that and created this really cool combination for the brass and percussion as a whole. Well, well, there was one idea I, I in on this show in this show the the very first one of the very first windows here where it was that you know kind of articulate stab or or even with just the front ensemble there's one drum break in there where it's like front ensembles kind of punctuating harmonically only. Mm -hmm. um, I just mentioned to, to Richard in passing at one of our design meetings, I said, uh, hey, man, when you get a chance, check out Inside Out um, by Chick Corea. And uh, there's a four-movement piece in there entitled Tale of Daring. And in chapter three, he chapters at one, two, three, four. In chapter three, man, him and Weckl just go at it. I mean, it is ridiculous. And it was uh, you know, of course, the story is, and I, I believe it, is that him and when they were recording the album, uh, him and Dave just went in and it's like, all right, let's do this. And that was it. It was a one take, <laughs> which is totally believable because you know sure. what incredible musicians they are. Yeah. But if you listen to that piece of music um, where Korea is just punctuating harmonically and it's very abstract and Weckl's just going at it, that was sort of my inspiration for the beginning of some of these stabs and some of the spatial awareness stuff that we had going on where they cleared it out for certain voices. So that would be my reference um, probably musically for that. And I think then having seen success or enjoyment maybe as an audience and also as designers, um, then we began incorporating that I think a little bit more into, uh, into our repertoire. 
ladies and gentlemen, the lick. <laughs> One, two, three, four, get it! Funky drummer. Jack and Diane. In the air tonight. These are three of the most iconic drum fills or licks in history. And I think the lick from Niagara Falls has entered the pantheon. That is the greatest licks of all time. And yes, Brett, it is shaka kung kung shaka kung kung shaka 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 that 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 lick has entered in my mind as the top two. The other one is that twelve eight right? Like as just two of the most wonderful. Now, do can y'all just? I I just want to hear. This is the behind the music. Like we could talk for four hours about that. You know, lick. Brett and Eric, how did this? I don't even know how to. I'm just so amped about that lick. I just wanted to talk about how did this came to be. Let's let's talk about it. Well. I'll be honest with you. Uh, are you familiar with the Blues Brothers album called Briefcase Full of Blues? I'm familiar with the Blues Brothers, yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, in on that album, uh, Steve Jordan was a drummer. And if you go to uh, B-Movie, Boxcar, uh, what is it? Boxcar Full of Blues or Boxcar Blues, that's it. B-Movie, Boxcar Blues. Uh-huh. You'll hear Steve lay that down. No way. And no, um, yes. And it's like, you're going to love that album, or you're going to love at least that tune on the album because that's the lick you like to hear. <laughs> but now he didn't have the, uh, I'm going to take credit for the hi-hat color under that sarcastically. Oh. But but yeah, man, that, that was all uh, just a Steve Jordan idea that I'd heard years ago, man. And I was just like, when I got there, I was just like, man, this has to have some space. We got to get funky. And I don't know. I mean, it's 20 years ago, Daniel. I, Maybe I did hear the tune while we were writing the show and just didn't remember. But I remember that that lick. In fact, it's I think it's at a minute 24 on that tune. That's how insanely <laughs> buried that is in my head. But it's it, that's where it came from. And that's where I got, I get some, like Eric said, man, you know, you were talking about percussion ensemble. I think, I think the beauty of the design team was we all got so much inspiration from things that had nothing to do with drum corps or uh, a direct relationship. You know, you look at the visual stuff with the pools of water and the swirling in the visual that Michael did and the, the waves and this hat and then, it, you know, like the flag design by Andy and the guys. And, you know, it's just, I think we're all drawing on just anything that was uh, a, an artistic stimulation to us at the time. And I think that's what, I think that's what partly or maybe mostly made the ride so so wonderful together, you know, was just, it was such a free-thinking um, group of designers. So, yeah, that's that's where it came from, man, Steve Jordan. Eric, do you remember the first time you heard that lick? Were you as uh, amped out, geeked out about it as, uh, as many of no, us? I, I don't remember the first time I heard it, to be honest with you. Um, and, and 
and the Brett says that I didn't even know where it came from. <laughs> it's just it's just what we did, you know. Um, I, I remember uh, pit player playing the hi hat and the snare drum. Brett, you probably remember it was Brad Palmer. Um, and he uh, played it very well. He laid it down very well and could listen to the battery great. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, it's just one of those things, just everything just kind of hit. And, and, of course, it, it leads into that big unison groove section, um, which once you get there, I, there's a story I want to tell about that. Oh. But, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm going back and looking at this, and, you know, and I, I just I don't remember, you know, where these things, you know, came from. <laughs> Other than we just we just had a blast doing it and it, it worked and and then we just kind of fed off each other. Yeah, I swear that those three hi hat splashes might be the most iconic hi hat splashes ever played on a football field. <laughs> They're just so tasty, and let's not forget about that splash symbol that precedes it. It's not, you know, you, I, I get hyped up on the, the hi-hat, but then I go, oh yeah, there's that splash symbol on there. You know, eat your heart out, Frank to Kelly. As you said, you go into then a straight eighth groove, and the tenors are just, it sounds like they're just playing, you know, just kind of laying it down. Oh, and then the hi-hat enters on the backbeat, oh, with the ice bell on the downbeats. And and then the most out-of-character moment till that point for the Cavaliers, which is the rock out. Now, Eric, you said you wanted to talk about that. I'm curious how much fun it was to let loose and just groove, not only musically, but visually in a way that no Cavalier had ever grooved before. Let, let's Let's talk about this. Yeah, and it's funny that you use those particular words because it was no groove that the Cavaliers ever had used before. The guys in the line didn't want to do it. <laughs> Are you serious? I remember getting them to groove. They they were very angry when we asked them to get into it. And and they they had attitude. They were like, This is not what I came to the Cavaliers to do. I don't oh my want God. To, they wanted to be great, and, you know, and, and have, have this poker face, this Cavalier, you know, serious. Yeah. And so when they got there and I was having this conversation with one of the guys in the snare line not too long ago. And, and I, and I still remember it read as Mark Hunter. And oh, uh, Mark Hunter, who's in Austin now. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, he's teaching with Joe Hobbs down at Vandergrift. And, uh, those guys, they we asked them to get into it, and they were so mad. They said, "All right, we're going to get into it." And they put their head down, and they looked all mad and angry while they were doing it. And we got through and said, "All right, great, do that every time." They <laughs> to, to stick, they, they were doing it to to prove a point, and it actually worked. And, it, and that, that's what you see, you know, on the final version. Uh, it's my, my Roland Chavez always called it the GI Joe that that body movement that you, I don't even know what the term is I just you know it's the the, the expression visual expression time but yeah it was it, it was just it was not a cavalier thing for all the reasons why you mentioned on that and I, I still remember the day they put that in and I remember the guys being so mad <laughs> I mean they just did not want to do it it was a big big controversy and you know I mean it just it just one of those things that they they expressed their anger and it worked. 
Well, well, you don't get Fight Club in 2002 without this section in 2000. So good, good for you. And, and yeah, y'all grooved so many times since. But as they say, you never forget your first time. And uh, I think the 2000 Cavalier Breakdown Rockout section very well might be the best one. There's one last thing about that movement that just tickles me. And it's after the return of those opening stabs. We have the brass start the Niagara Falls melody. And then the pit interjects and finishes it with this unison ending. And it's just a small exchange, but it makes me so giddy because it's, you know, like it's just I've, I've ripped that lick off too. not those exact music notes, but I'm like, hey, let's start something in the woods. Was that always in the cards, Eric, or did the ending evolve? Did Richard write a full thing or do you remember how that little little ending happened? I'll be honest with you. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> sit here and try to you know oh yeah no well we that's like no I, I don't even remember how it came about to be honest with you so well, it's, it's such a cool ending because it's like not even an in your face it's kind of like hey we grooved and then doo -doo 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 -doo. oh it's just it's perfect it's perfect Thank and you. then as jeff fiedler used to say y'all run the credits And the next movement begins with cascading keyboards and, and such a really cool effect. I'm calling them cascades. Uh, it's like you can see the water trickling down from the cave. And, and do you remember how you crafted that section, Eric, with the Niagara Falls theme and sort of the pointillistic cascading yeah. of notes? Yeah, I, you know, uh, Richard actually provided, you know, some of the source material there. And I was able to add on to that. That, that was definitely a group effort. Um, but it's exactly what you said of the water, you know, dripping and, you know, just, uh, and just kind of adding on and very ethereal as it, as it, as it progressed. Um, and it was one of those things that it just, you know, you just, you had a different through three different, you know, ideas going on and, and, um, it kind of came together. Yeah, as you said, it's ethereal. It's almost an aleatoric section. There's a little bluesy, jazzy with just like a hint of ride cymbal kind of groove, which leads us into the first impact of the closer.
where we have this smoking hot featurette section for the battery. It's first the bases, followed by the snares, then the tinners, and then finally the full battery together. And Brett, this isn't just your stock rammer jammer drum break. It's really sophisticated and controlled. I guess like Eric said, it was very cavalier after y'all totally just rammed it down. You kind of went back to your stoic uh, nature. And the next entrance was at a softer dynamic. So you did have to eventually bring the dynamics down, but that whole break is at a lower dynamic value, uh, dynamic level. Do you remember why the decision was made to be more controlled and soft rather than loud and rambunctious? And, and again, was it perhaps a yang to the rock out that was the yin? Yeah. I mean, you know, like Eric had, had said earlier, you know, a lot of times the evolution of things over the summer has to do with the fact that, you know, you've got enough uh, really good input from whether it be other designers or adjudicators. And we just felt like we needed to display um, kind of that musical tasty side. Um, because we just got done with, you know, a good chunk of notes and, uh, it was time to, to get back to expressing and expressing, excuse me, and making things a little more elastic, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, you know, allowing things to move. And I think that also kind of it, what it does is it kind of softens, it it softens the music enough that it makes the end then more impactful Mm -hmm. because we're not getting the same grind the whole time. Um, and I think from a visual perspective, it, if I remember correctly, it didn't need, um, based on what I remember, um, the, the aggressive energy as much as it did this, this nuance, I think, in shape. So after this build, we get to the silence that leads us into one of Michael's iconic drill moves, the diamond cutter. There are eight counts of silence before that fantastic impact and move. Do you recall if there was a previous version where those rests were filled with percussion? Or was this always like, I want it to be silent before we just we just hit him across the face? I believe it was always silent. Um, I, I think that... If I remember correctly, um, it was set up that way from the beginning. Uh, you know, I again, 20 years ago and you're trying, you know, you know how it is, but, um, I, I don't have a memory of where we made like a conscious decision to take notes out. So I would say it's probably was that from the beginning. Yeah. I, I don't know anything either on that, to be quite honest with you. Oh, it's, it was a good use of space. That's for sure. Yeah. Cause yeah. It's, it's, well, there's nothing more, sometimes there's nothing more tense than space, you know, that, that just that, and then when you hit it together like that, coming out of the space, it's just, you know, it's another level of intensity, I think, for your audience as well, you know. Yeah, to, absolutely. To me, space is something that really makes things work um, because it, it, it can um, just make something so much more effective if it has space around it, So if that makes sense. It does. We need more space in uh, drum corps and marching band and whatnot. But, hey, you know, whatever. <laughs> So we're heading to the waterfall at the edge of the cliff at full steam ahead. And then we get to my second favorite lick, which accompanies the four to five pass throughs, a very effective drill move in this time. 
And I swear there is something about battery calls with ice bell or brake drum responses from the pit. And this fill is yet another drum set influence kick at that time, which was really new and fresh and unique for the feel. I think it's like, leading into the sort of the final recap. Is that is that another uh, is that another breadism from a from a, a rock and or roll album, or or, or where'd that come from? That is not, but. Again, your ability to transcribe and just sing things uh, <laughs> a, is fantastic because that's exactly what it was right there. I mean, you've obviously listened to this album, so it's awesome. <laughs> um, no, for me, it was about, again, this is another example, I guess, of um, I, need, I need an eight-count idea, right? It has, to, it has to feel like an eight-count idea, not two four-count ideas mm-hmm. you know for young for young designers just keeping that in mind you know that a lot of times it's like well i got two bars here well for me it's like i've got an eight count bar and i think that's what makes it feel connected because we just got done going and then i just kind of took that same sort of dotted quarter and kind of kept it alive but we colorized it more aggressively. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like it was a brand new idea. It was the bars before that set it up, and then it was like no more boards, but we got some china and some splash choke, and we're going to have a little zill in there, and we're going to colorize it, and it's like, it works because by then the audience is into what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're feeling what we're doing. And then it just continues by itself, which makes it more present and it's colorized. And you're like, okay, cool. So really that was a four bar idea. Okay, great. You know what I mean? So I think that's at least compositionally, that's how I looked at that or in most things, hopefully. Now, Eric, when it comes to the Zill Bell, I call it the Ice Bell. I think Ice Bell is LP. I think Zill is obviously Zildjian. Can you talk about the implements that you would use when playing that? Because I know that I have to this day, whenever I call for a Zill Bell or an Ice Bell, I call for almost the same kind of thing. In fact, I wasn't lying when I'm in rehearsals. I'm like, hey, do you have this particular mallet company mallet to use for this? And, you know, we figure it out to, to work. We can say innovative percussion. It's OK. Um, can, we, can you talk about the implements you used for the Ice Bell, Zill Bell combination? Uh, you know what? I, I don't really recall what exact implement it was. I'm sure it was uh, a, a hard um, xylophone mallet, uh, a Glockenspiel mallet. Um, and again, it really it depended on you know what what the section you know or what what the sound called for. But I'm fairly certain it was it was a, it was a, like a uh, just a hard you know polyball type uh, xylophone mallet. Yeah, I, I I feel like I always ask for. Did you make a hard black James Ross uh, mallet? We do, but you have to be careful with those because they. It was probably not that mallet because if you play too hard with those, they'll crack. That's true. That's true. Were you, it's a phenolic mallet, and that phenolic it, it it'll yeah. break if you play too hard. Yeah. Were Were you making your Field Series black mallets back in the mid to early two thousands? Uh, yes, that's probably what it was. The FS five fifty. Yeah. Uh, but that was still it was hard as an inch and a quarter. Uh, in diameter, but it was still uh, hard, but it was also uh, dark as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what I, you know, because nowadays people turn their sticks backwards and like, oh, but it's like you don't get that like that articulation. You don't get the it power. Have, no. Yeah, no, it's, no. It doesn't no. have the, uh, you know, yeah. the forehead. 
<laughs> yeah, that's what, how we used to refer to that. Very musical. Hey, dude, we need an ice pick in the forehead. <laughs> that's perfect. That is probably going to write that in all my music notes now. Ice pick to the forehead. So then it's all aboard the groove train to the end with basically a recap of the movement three groove. And I'm curious if that was always on the table or was it like 2002 where y'all heard the crowd reaction to part three and then go, hey, we need to bring this back at the very end and, and, and screw the drum line. We're going to make them groove one last time, even though they hate it. You know, if I'm not mistaken, that's something that we we added in the last half of the season. Brett, you correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I think we did that exact thing of let's bring this groove back one more time because the core at that point, visually, they were parked. They, they got to their final set and they just, you know, everybody just grooved for that last section. Um, I, I may be wrong on that, but I think that's that's the way that uh, that evolved. Yeah, I think it was, but I do think Daniel, you're 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 probably hitting the nail on the head there in the in the regards to, uh, you know, when you when you saw how the audience reacted to that moment in the middle of the closer, it was like, man, that I think the people would really enjoy it if we just did that one more time, and I think mm-hmm. it'd be a, the strongest way to finish the idea because you know it's funny, you know that the kids might have complained in the beginning. But at the end of the day, when you have that many thousands of people on their feet and you're trying to keep them on their feet, well, then do it again. Bring mm-hmm. it back. You know, it's okay to be pop once in a while when it it it's an enjoyable moment for the audience. They pay a lot of good money and spend a lot of money to be there. And that's our gig, man. Let's let's go entertain. So I think I, I think uh I agree with Eric. It it was later in the season, but I felt like it was really, it was one of those where we sort of took the rhythm of what we did earlier and to some degree just transposed it rhythmically, you know, where maybe the first time it was written as 16ths and this and that. This time it's in a cut time format because of the way we were moving. So just mm-hmm. as you see the music, it's like, yes, it's, it is that feel. Um, and I think, you know, it, it worked out for us. You know, I think that people enjoyed getting to hear that one more time. Yeah, you, my, my brother marched baritone uh, Cavaliers 01 and 02, and I, I always ask him about Fight Club, and he's like, yeah, the first time we did it, we thought it was the dumbest thing. And then, <laughs> and then you hear the crowd, and you're like, oh, okay, yes, we should do this. So it makes, right. yeah, it makes sense. The drum line's like, this is a grumble, grumble. And then they go, oh, okay, yeah. We, and, and then you go two years later, shaving a haircut, boys. Here we go. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so funny you say that, because I remember – even way back in 81 doing the backstick feature and the snare break and all this stuff and the crowd's going crazy and then you watch the video and you realize it's for the color guard who's doing the <laughs> and you're like you thought it was about you but you realize no man this is this is a bigger show than a snare line <laughs> nonsense nonsense <laughs> snare lines win world championships right that's what they think that's what they think right so I, I'm going to ask you both this question. We'll start off with Eric. Uh, you know, this was the beginning of, as we, as I mentioned earlier, sort of like the Cavaliers 
dominance uh, in the early 2000s. And this show, it's funny to think about the Cavaliers now because, you know, just look at what the Cavaliers did in uh, 2019. You know, just the, the, the costumes, the characterization, you know, the full body movement, the buy-in by the drumline. And to hear you tell that story about what the drumline reacting in 2000 to that kind of stuff. And it was just basically a little groove and now they're going crazy. Do, do you have any final thoughts or memories from that 2000 year uh, show with the Cavaliers and just maybe how it evolved, how it came together, the magic of, you know, just all of that stuff. What, what are some things that come to mind when, when you think about that 2000 show? When I think about, you know, 2000, I, I just think about the journey. Uh, I, I think about how the evolution happened throughout the summer. Um, and just, you know, just, we were, just getting up and going to work and figuring out, you know, the direction and making changes, making tweaks, you know, and I, I realized that when I like went back and listened to a mid-season uh, uh, performance and you go, wow, you know, it really did evolve. And, you know, just there's so many things that weren't in early season and you, you didn't know where it was going. But again, everybody was, every, we were all having a great time. We were all on the same page and just trying to figure it out on a daily basis and get didn't just didn't get caught up in the comp, the competitive aspect of it. Yeah, you get you get caught up on it a little bit, but that wasn't the focus. The focus was just getting the product right, making sure the kids had the vehicle they needed to go as far as they could go. So just really the 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 you know, if I have to say it in in one word is fun. We were we were just having fun working together you know, good friends, you know, uh, hanging out and, and doing what we did, you know, doing it, doing it together. Brett, any final thoughts, memories from that show? Yeah, I I agree. I mean, you know, you know, Daniel, when you climb on the staff bus and it, it just feels so comfortable and it's a summer of just laughter. Um, because that's one thing that I always feel is extremely important that, you know, you, you can become great and have a good time at the same time if you know how to harness the focus. And I think the design team had so much, you know, we were just starting to gel and it was so comfortable and there was so much trust. We had amazing kids. The The staff um, was incredible. You know, um, you look at Drew Shanefield and Mike McIntosh as the caption heads, you know, two of the best people in the business doing their thing. And uh, when you have, when you have that, then I think the the product obviously speaks for itself. But with that comes a lot of fun. You know, nobody was, nobody ever got in anybody else's grill about anything. I mean, literally, you know, I mean, sometimes you get in those zones where it's like, oh, well, it looks like our caption won tonight. And it's like, dude, seriously, you know what I mean though? You know, right. it's like, yeah. man, that's, that'll never work. If you're looking to have a successful organization, that that's not going to work. So yeah, I was just very privileged to be around those guys and, and have them there. And you know, one other thing I, I do want to say is just the experience to work with, uh, with Brett, but also, you know, uh, Scott Coder, Richard Sacedo, Michael Gaines, you know, it, again, it just having the opportunity to even be in the same room with those guys, uh, was, was a privilege, but also the percussion staff, you know, everybody was on the staff. I want to, you know, give them shout outs. It was, you know, Mike McIntosh, John Brennan, Blaine Lockheed, uh, Rob Moore, Gary Rudolph, um, uh, maybe leaving somebody out, but again, it's just, we, we were all friends. We, we all hung. It, it was just anytime we were together, it was, it was fun, you know? So it's, it's the, all those personalities are what made that special. 
I know that the last four episodes have ended with me fawning over the designers and telling them how much they influenced and inspired me. And then I ask for apologies for how much I've ripped them off over the years. So I'm going to do it again. Niagara Falls is such a fun and great show. It started a dynasty and really set the stage for what the future of conceptual design and audio and visual coordination was going to bring to drum corps and marching band. And that 2000 show is definitely one of the most entertaining and best drum corps shows of all time. Brett, while I'm at my best, I could never play the cool beats that you have written over the years. And I definitely can air drum along with the best of them um, and, and can point to your work as an example of write like that uh, when it comes to my shows. Uh, I've definitely borrowed from your genius in artistry over the last 20 years. So I, I, I want to say thank you for everything you have brought to the activity. Uh, thank you. I mean, that's that's too kind, Daniel. And having worked with you uh, right back at you and, uh, you know, the uh, appreciation for your level of dedication to music, music making and what you're doing here with the podcast, uh, I think it's in great. I think it's incredible. And especially at this time when we need to talk more about things we love to do. Yeah, thank you for that. And as someone who specialized in front ensemble, there's no one I have been inspired by, influenced by, or have stolen uh, from more than you, Eric. I'm, I'm sure there are folks listening right now who are nodding and saying the same thing. Like, you most certainly changed the game, and the front ensemble world is so much better because of you. So thank you for what you've brought to the activities over these last decades. Well, thank you, Daniel. That, that is extremely flattering, and I really appreciate the kind words. Um, uh, again, it, it just, we just got up and figured out what to do today. And, you know, and, and we had the opportunity to work with great people and great players. Um, I had the opportunity to ride with my mentor and brother, Brett Kuhn, you know, and he's the reason that I was able to even get into this activity. Um, you know, so it was just a great experience for me and, and again, I, I think we were just doing what everybody was doing. We were just trying to figure figure out what to do next. And, uh, and I really appreciate your, your compliments. And uh, you know, I don't I don't really you know feel it or see it that way. Other than we were just trying to you know figure out what worked for the music. Thank you. <laughs> um, I gotta ask, and I know this is the last people I've asked are so humble, and y'all two are so incredibly humble. Eric might be the most humble, um, but <laughs> Brett, you helped earn six rings from the Cavaliers, and Eric, you are a part of five. I'm curious if either of you have all of your rings. Where do you keep them, and how often do you put them on and wear them to flex on some fools? <laughs> Eric, you want to start this one? <laughs> I will start it uh, because everybody's answer has been different. Um, I do have all my rings. And the reason I got those were for nostalgic reasons. Nice. Uh, I, I have them in a case at home. And it's something that I know when I get older that I'm always going to be able to look back and, and have a special place, a special memories from all the years with special people and, and, and working with, with uh, the, the students and, and the members in the Corps. Um, because it was some one of those things I, I just I, I didn't want to get a ring to wear it and say, hey, look what I've got. But it mm -hmm. was like something that it meant something to me. So so I, I did, you know, get the, you know, the rings and it's uh, it's for, I guess, for the lifetime, if that makes sense. You use them to keep Henry in check if he ever steps up to you or what? <laughs> like, no, I'm he sorry. has a special mallet for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the, yeah, the Henry O one. <laughs> what about what about you, Brett? What about all your uh, your rings well, and or drum best drum trophies? 
You, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I I think Eric was probably the smarter one of, of the two of us because there, there is a part of me that wishes I had um, all of those rings right now. You know, I bought the first two, and and then I I I just I never I never really had them laid out. It I, I didn't I don't know. I I guess the not I don't know. It felt like almost bragging. I know a lot of people wear them around. And they should. You know what I mean? But um, I all I thought about were the kids, and uh, so I I thought, well, why keep buying these and put them in a drawer somewhere? And yeah, I know I should have them out, but I can tell you. You know, I can tell you who the center guy. I can tell you most of the guys in the line from all those years. And to me, that's uh, that is the ring right there. So I kind of took that approach to it. And like I said, at, at the end of the day, I may regret it, um, but uh, I don't regret having those guys in my line and those those people I got to work with. Yeah. Again, incredibly humble answers from everyone involved. So great. I really want y'all to bring some ego sometime. Like, yeah, you know, I'm wearing them right now. You know, it feels like, yeah. <laughs> now, now, Brett, um, and I'll give Eric the opportunity to do the same. Uh, I, I have in my notes, ask if they want to plug anything. I know that sounds so obvious, but um, is there something that's going on? As we are recording this on August, oh, August, geez, I can't even tell. It's October 20th <laughs> in 2020, which uh, these are the Corona tapes, the, as we right. know. So um, yeah. what, what, what are you doing to keep busy? What are you doing to spread the good word, to keep music going? Let's talk about it. Well, luckily, I'm still able to do some teaching at the university and the high school, um, you know, Zoom and live combination. But uh, the main thing I'm working on right now is with Waypan and uh, DrumlineBlueprint.com. And we're creating a, uh, a portal right now where um, teachers, students alike can subscribe to the portal. Um, currently has probably close to 30 gigs of video and taping that's been done. And that's all getting loaded up now. So anybody interested in that, you know, like I like I told you before we started, Daniel, one of my my main goal is to be the assistant director for all those those people who have who have the whole band of themselves mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that help. And I think if there's one thing we're learning is how to melt meld technology mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. what we do on a daily basis, but not let it be the ruler but let it be a servant in a very positive way. So I'm very, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to help a lot of kids out. Um, and again, young instructors alike, students, whatever, it's it's beginning to advance and there's a lot, there's just tons of material in there. So drumlineblueprint.com and Ensemble Block. Thank you. And Eric, same question. Uh, I know that you are a, a, a Forbes top 500 uh, president founder. <laughs> Let, uh, what, what have you been doing? This is your time to plug maybe the new Sandy Rennick signature vibraphone mallets or anything like that, which are, I love the color of those mallets, by the way. Um, it's such a beautiful color. But what, what, what have you been doing to keep busy and spreading the good word, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I tell you, you know, with, with my, my day job at Innovative Percussion, we're just, you know, continuing to, to move that, this project forward. Um, and also figuring out how to survive and get through the COVID-19. Um, it is, it has been very challenging. Um, it, like many businesses, you know, we've had to lay off a lot of people and it's, it's really changed the, you know, the way we, uh, uh, we go to work on a daily basis. You know, a lot of people in the front office are involved in the back. You know, I've been involved in turning sticks and, and running, uh, tumblers, putting finish on sticks, wrapping mallets, 
Um, I, that's early on. There was, I was doing more of that. As things progressed, I wasn't doing as much of it. Um, on Thursday and Friday, myself, uh, you know, many other folks in the front office were in the back packaging product. Um, you know, uh, Nick uh, Hasso and Henry Go are both um, involved in their our, our marketing guys. Henry's doing artist relations. I think everybody knows Henry, you know, very well from the videos we put out. Um, Nick does all of our social media, but those guys are spending half the day in their office and then half the day uh, back, you know, putting in construction, putting mallets together. And we really are just making things continue to go forward because we want to come out of this, you know, uh, better than we went into it. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's allowed us to redefine uh, our, our manufacturing processes, our uh, uh, just the way we operate on a daily basis in the front office. And actually, it's given us time to slow down and catch a breath and really examine everything before we were going so fast. We couldn't, you know, stop and, and massage things and, and get it exactly the way we wanted to. So this is this has been good for the big picture of, of, of the business and the company, you know, to get through this. So that's what is spent, you know, most of the time. You know, I did have the one project that I'm writing with Brett with Amachi and we, you know, we actually wrote their show. And so that was a, a nice getaway from, you know, some of the, the daily stress to, to go home and do that. Cause that's still, uh, you know, a, a nice creative outlet. And, uh, you know, so we'll you know, can hopefully continue to do that. Um, but yeah, that's yeah, just it. It's my, I live, I don't live in the educational world the, the same as you guys do. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the COVID thing has looked a little bit different, you know, um, but I think at the end of the day, we're all in it together. Um, so just everybody's figuring out what the new normal is and how to get through it so we can come out better than we went in. You may not be in the educational world, but you're definitely a huge part of it. That's for sure. So, gentlemen, I cannot say thank you enough for taking the time to talk about this show and to share your wisdom and experiences much like many of us out there, I look forward to the time when we can all enjoy your brilliance and creativity live and in person again. Thank you all so much for, for talking with me today. This episode of Sketchbook Podcast was recorded, edited, and produced by me, Daniel Montoya Jr. in Austin, Texas. Our logo is created by John Su of Purpose Designs, and our music is provided by Epidemic Sound. If you enjoy Sketchbook, tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review featured on a future episode. Got questions, comments, suggestions, or concerns? Email us at sketchbookpodcast at gmail.com. It, too, could be featured on a future episode. Be sure to join the Sketchbook community on Facebook at Sketchbook Podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Sketchbook Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thanks for listening.